Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's go to Dr. Neil Rao, who is very good to us, gives us a lot of his time. Uh, infectious diseases specialist, associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Rao, thank you very much for taking the time. Now, let's start with vaccines and the vaccine issues and the questions about vaccine arrivals in Canada. We have more questions than answers. How do you, as an infectious diseases specialist, assess the confusion and the mixed messaging concerning vaccines for Canadians? Well, one of the most confusing messages we had until now is that we had to have a vaccine before we could open up before we could undo the lockdowns. We need to deconfuse people that they are not necessarily tied together. It's out there in the press, yes. It would be ideal to have a vaccine to provide immunity to people through vaccination. But the other side of it is that the number of cases is falling, the number of hospitalizations is falling, and we can't credit the vaccine for that. It has to be in part due to immunity to the disease. We still have a vulnerable population for sure, and we need to be careful, but we can't be in a space where we're waiting for the vaccine as a precondition to open schools, to let teachers teach, uh, to let society uh, interact to some degree as it used to. Maybe not fully. We're not going to have hockey games with full stadiums, but we'll still have some return to normalcy, at least what we were like before we went into lockdowns in many provinces. So that Do you the have thing. the second thing is the obsession with the variants, whether the vaccine works against them or not, falls into the same bucket. It's great if we have a vaccine that works against variants, but even if we don't, we have to start talking about what is essential, what's a floor minimum, a floor minimum that we're going to live with in terms of number of cases and activities that are going to continue, whether or not we have a vaccine. Okay, I had a question, but I'm going to shift to another one. So we don't have the vaccine now. We don't have, you've had one vaccination, you told us, and you've been put off indefinitely, Correct. as has happened with so many others in the medical profession Correct. and beyond, who've received that first shot and don't know when, if, you're going to get the second one. So uh, how do we manage our lives? How do we manage going forward in this country, given the fact that we don't have a vaccine, at least not now? How do we manage that? So for myself, I really don't care if I get the second dose or not. I've said before, there are other people who are higher priority for this vaccine than myself. I got it because I'm hospital associated and they had leftover doses that they had to use instead of waste. But really, most people under 60, healthy like myself, if not morbidly obese, if they don't have lung disease, kidney disease, if they get this disease, the outcome is better than not. So in other words, there's a small number of people with terrible outcomes that you hear about in the news, but there's 99.8% or 99.9% of people who get this disease, and they blow it off. And there's a huge number of cases in people without symptoms. They don't even know they had it. They've been automatically vaccinated from the disease through natural infection. That's partly what's driving the dropping number of cases. It's not the whole story, but it's part of it. Everyone wants to credit the lockdowns for being the answer, but there is a counterfactual of other countries in the world that didn't do all of these things where the cases are dropping, like Sweden, like Norway, where they don't use masks, like the UK, where there is a lockdown that confuses the picture, and then like Israel, where there's a vaccine in the picture and there's also a lockdown in the picture. So it's a bit of a dog's breakfast to figure out what's working and what isn't. But in summary, whether or not people get the vaccine 
quote, in time, I think the reality in Canada is we're going to see the vaccine for most people in April, and by then the cases will continue to drop. And the other question will be, if cases are dropping without the vaccine, why should everybody get vaccinated? I'm not saying people who are at risk shouldn't, but that's the debate and question that is going to happen by the time April rolls around, is no one can credit the vaccine for the dropping cases, and people will release restrictions, and you can't say it's because of the restrictions that things are getting better if releasing restrictions doesn't lead to a resurgence. And we also have provinces which have done different things. Some have been more restrictive than others, mine in Ontario more restrictive than B.C., and yet the cases are dropping in B.C. as well. And even with the variant, the cases are dropping. Maybe we'll have another hump where it goes up a bit, but there's still an overall trend that things are getting better despite the absence of the vaccine, so then what? That's going to be the toughest thing to message to people. Yeah, well, right now, the the word that everyone is using is variants. And the yeah. question is, how much of a threat are these new COVID variants? I've heard and read different accounts. And we hear that 30 or 50% or 70% more infectious uh, variants are out there. Sounds concerning, but I have nothing really concrete to measure that infection threat increase against as a layperson. So what does that mean to me? So what matters, what matters more is just not the number of infections, but does it translate into people ending up more in hospital and dying? And to be honest, with some of the variants, some people who have not seen the virus before are going to get it. The variant is, a lot, is able to transmit more in the community because people don't have immunity to it the way they have it to the COVID classic. So this is COVID new. And therefore, it's going to be able to transmit a bit more. You'll have more of the population see the virus, and there will be some deaths from the COVID variant. Yes, serious cases. I've already seen a serious case from a UK variant in my own hospital. But at the end of the day, the overall trend from 30,000 feet may well be one of improvement. There may actually be a transient worsening before things get better, but overall it's going to keep going down whether or not we have the vaccine. If we can get the vaccine in time to protect the vulnerable people, the impact of the variant of transmitting should be lessened. We should still try as much as possible to get those vulnerable populations vaccinated. We should also be watching the science carefully to see if the vaccine doesn't work as well against the variants as it does against COVID Classic. Hopefully there's a crossover of protection, even if the vaccine is directed at COVID Classic, it still protects you against the variants. But there's some emerging information that at least for the South African variant, it doesn't work so well, but that's not the dominant strain here right now. The UK strain seems to be the winner in Canada right now as the second strain. So we'll have to see. There could be, there's also a Southern California strain, and we may have our own made-in-Canada variant from Quebec or other hard-hit areas. The variants develop because... There is a huge attack rate in the population. A lot of the population sees the virus. The virus, therefore, has fewer people it can infect because other people have developed immunity to the original COVID classic. And so what does the virus do? It's evolution. It drifts the same way flu strains drift. So variants are, in a way, an indicator that there is some degree of herd immunity developing in a hard-hit population. No surprise that the U.K., Brazil and South Africa are the places where variants developed because those were places that were really hard hit, like Manaus in Brazil had a huge percentage of the population see the virus. So it's evolution. It's the virus's attempt to survive. It's not a great thing to celebrate. It may lead to some surge in hospital uh, pressure. We have to remain ready on that front for sure. We can't just relax. We keep doing all of the protective things we do in hospital to keep it out, preventing visitors from coming in, all of us wearing our masks and our face shields. 
and we try to vaccinate the vulnerable population, but people also have to get on with their lives. We can't make variants the new lockdown. Just before I take a break, and you and I talked about this last time I asked you, the last time you were on the air with me about, about this issue, it is likely, is it not, that there are variants out there among us, and we don't know they're there because we're not testing for them. Right. So now what we're doing is we're trying to get every single positive specimen tested to look to see if there are at least one of these variants. And then I think a percentage of those specimens will be sent for more gene sequencing to see if they represent a new strain. Almost ready for a betting pool that within a month we're going to have a Canadian variant that we'll be talking about because this virus adapts. Once you get a hard-hit area of Canada, and I put Quebec and Ontario in that category where a lot of people have seen the virus, it's inevitable we may get a local strain. The question is the fitness of that strain. So does it become a dominator? Is it a winner or is it the People's Party of Canada? You know, kind of it's there, but it's not really taken off. So it's a little bit like a, a political party popularity, which one takes off. These virus strains that do well have some change that makes them attach more easily to the receptor in the body that binds the virus, or there's some other evolutionary advantage that makes a variant a winner versus one that's just a, a one-timer. I suspect I'll be hearing from Maxime Bernier before the end of the day. <laughs> I better be careful what I said there. <laughs> Dr. Rao, this question has quite a few moving parts, but let me have a go at it. We've stayed home and restricted our movements to save lives. The economy has been variously shuttered and at a huge expense as the nation has piled on hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. While employment has suffered as mental health has deteriorated and questions about the future abound, now there's a consistent trend of declining numbers of daily reported infections, which you mentioned earlier in this interview. So when do you believe it'll be time to kickstart the economy, assist business, and how do we continue to remain vigilant against COVID when we start to open up? I think we need to start already opening up a little bit, and we have to peel away things that don't work versus things that may work. So return on investment is a phrase I've been using every week with you. Uh, having people wear masks outside or double or triple masks, this is a complete wasted effort. It's even diverting resources from where they should go uh, in terms of the mask supply. So some things have to be pulled away. Letting small businesses open a wee bit with limited capacity instead of full force, that's a beginning restart. The problem is that everyone keeps focusing on COVID numbers, looking through the COVID lens and not looking at all the harms that go with aiming for complete suppression. So if we go for an A-plus in COVID suppression, trying to stop every human interaction to try and stop the virus from transmitting, we have huge harms. If we allow a bit of transmission and accept it that it's not stoppable, because it isn't, but allow some things to function the way they have in some provinces like B.C. and now increasingly in Alberta, I think we can find a compromise and slowly we can start peeling away more and more restrictions that don't really give a return on investment. If 200,000 people have to do something to prevent one infection versus 200 people to prevent an infection, that's what I mean by return on investment. We have to start looking at things like that, like closing a downhill ski hill in Ontario. How many infections did that really prevent versus not letting visitors into a long-term care, which would have a much better return on investment. So what I don't see is this tiering. And then the other thing we need to do is leverage rapid tests. They may not be perfect, but they are a way of allowing us to segregate people from those who are infected from those who aren't. And we could start using those in factories, in food service, in a 
limited way in schools when there is an outbreak and get rapid answers and take the edge off of this without stopping every single infection. So leveraging rapid tests is another thing we need to talk about more than vaccines right now. Because vaccines okay, are so let's, not coming anytime soon. Yeah, let's do that. And let's put it within the context as well of kids being in school. Uh, you've spoken about this issue of kids being in school on this program several times. And yesterday I spoke with uh, Dr. Martha Fulford, right. who's also an infectious diseases specialist, who co-signed, as you did, an open letter to education ministers and premiers saying kids need to be in school. So um, schools will reopen in Ontario tomorrow, except for three boards in the Toronto area, including the Toronto Board, and, and in BC. And we'll be talking to the president of the BC Teachers Federation in the next hour. Masks are going to be more prevalent in the school system. So what's the, in the in the two minutes we have left here, would you just address the overall issue of kids in school, rapid testing in schools, what needs to happen? So first of all, having kids masks and masks in school, I think, is pointless. I don't know why BC is going backwards with that, even though their numbers are dropping. We need a pan-Canadian approach when it comes to schools because everyone's doing their own thing and then everyone looks over their shoulder at the most restrictive place and tries to copy them, all right? Second thing is, Kids being at school has to be viewed like an essential service. We don't close down a petroleum distribution plant because of COVID, because people need to have gas, all right? People need energy. We don't close down food distribution centers because people have to have food on the shelves of the grocery store despite COVID. Same thing for schooling. It's a UN development goal to give kids public education. Education has to continue. Case numbers be damned. And... Then, if there are outbreaks in schools, and by the way, in Sweden, they found teachers were actually as safe as people in the general community, even though they let the virus, quote, rip during their first wave, all right? If we open schools and if there are outbreaks, we use rapid testing to try and find kids who are asymptomatic and who aren't teachers who are symptomatic and who aren't, and we try to continue to function despite cases. We don't shut down a whole class or shut down a whole school. The craziest thing I see coming is a variant strain entering a school and they decide to close the entire school. This would be right back to zero again. It's like snakes and ladders. We have to stop this. People have to climb up the ladder and get to the top. Okay, one more quick question, 20 seconds. Are we making progress? I see a backwards slide, frankly. The only thing I see is a growing sort of annoyance and unrest in the populace with regards to endless enduring restrictions. But people are also very tolerant of losing their civil liberties. Uh, this is the other side of it, which I find paradoxical. But I see sort of a, a flip-flop. People are getting increasingly annoyed, and I think people are also getting scared of the economic harms. They're starting to think about it. It's not a cruel, undiscussable to talk about the economy in the same breath as this disease. That's changed a few months ago. How is COVID and the pandemic, how are they interfering with medical care for patients across Canada who are facing illness, often serious? And how long will the backlog of treatment or surgical procedures take to clear, and how much will it cost? And let's keep in mind that millions of Canadians, I think the number's around 5 million, are still without a family physician. Dr. Ann Collins is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. And Dr. Collins joins us to start off this Sunday, February 7th program. Dr. Collins, thank you very much for taking the time. And you presented at the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health on the impact of the COVID pandemic. And you spoke about your concerns about the state of Canada's health systems and stressed before the pandemic uh, and you, you told MPs uh, that by December, so two months ago, uh, the health care systems in this country had reached the tipping point. So how bad were things when you presented before the health committee, and how are they today, two months later? 
Well, first of all, Roy, thanks, thank you for having me on um, this afternoon. So the CMA commissioned a study uh, to look at the effect that the first wave of the pandemic had on six key procedures that make up 80% of procedures done in hospital. And the findings were quite alarming to us um, in that it, it showed us that uh, in order to, to catch up just on those six procedures, it would take uh, an extra $1.3 billion um, of funding. Um, so that, And we also know that our wait times for many of those procedures were not optimal prior to the pandemic. And we have not looked at, although we will, what the, the effect of the second wave of the pandemic will be. So that's just on six procedures, uh, nothing to do with primary care. Can you tell us what those procedures are, please? Absolutely. So uh, we looked at uh, coronary artery bypass grafting, or cabbage, as it's called, uh, hip and knee replacements, cataract surgery, and then two diagnostic procedures uh, for CT scanning and MRI. And for example, um, it would take an extra um, set around 75 days of um, surgical time to catch up on cataract surgery, um, and then it sort of you know went down from there over the other procedures. So, uh, and as I say, that's just for those procedures. Yeah, and in some of those, certainly the cardiac issue, and I've heard that cancer is another issue, but where cardiac issues is potentially life and death. It is now. To be fair, uh, you know those emergent procedures. Um, have still been carried out. These would be um, still within that realm. There can be elective uh, cabbages, but I, I think, too, what is a bit of a misnomer is that these surgeries are often classified as elective, but that doesn't take into account the impact that delay in those types of surgeries. You know, things like you're having your, your hip and your knee replaced have quite a significant impact on your quality of life. You're yeah, managing sure. pain, you've had loss of mobility, um, your family often has to be more involved with uh, helping you out and so on. So far-reaching effects in these delays. And Dr. Collins, you, you mentioned you know, there are six uh, procedures or, or six conditions that you, that you referenced, but there's more than that in play, I'm sure, and there are millions of people in this country who require medical assistance. Millions have no family doctor, which is another issue. And uh, and there are also many Canadians, and we know this from the first wave, who are reluctant to pursue any medical investigation because they're scared to go to the hospital. Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you've raised some really great points there. Um, you're right. This measure did not measure in any way the impact of delays in diagnoses uh, because we know that, and again, first wave only, um, that many screening procedures were were delayed. So there were likely delayed diagnoses in things like breast cancers and, and colon cancers. And uh, people were, and, and I think still are, uh, reluctant to present themselves to the system, to their family physician, with symptoms. Um, and so that delay in diagnosis not only has significant impact for the patient, but also would probably then involve a greater need for other treatments like radiotherapy, for example, or, or perhaps a, a surgery may have been avoided. 
So um, just that it's it's almost too, too hard to measure all of the impact on on that backlog has on quality of life and on stress on an already stressed system. And we don't know what lies ahead for the balance of 2021 because there's so much uncertainty about when and how many vaccines will arrive in this country and how quickly and effectively they'll be distributed. But let me ask you this. What's the impact on your colleagues, on doctors and healthcare professionals who work with doctors? Um, again, it's, it's, I've, been, I've landed on one word for the time being. First of all, they're weary. Uh, they're weary just of the duration uh, of the pandemic and everything that it entails, um, both in their practice of medicine, but more specifically on the patients that they're caring for. Uh, they're concerned for their patients who are not coming or who are not presenting. Uh, they're concerned in um, hospital care settings where they're caring for very ill patients who cannot have contact with their families. They're concerned for their, uh, their patients who are residents in long-term care facilities. So we do have, um, we're fully anticipating that the mental health effects of this, um, sadly, on healthcare workers will be far-reaching uh, way beyond this pandemic, whenever it ends. Yeah, the question is how quickly could we catch up? If we, had, if we were all vaccinated tomorrow and uh, the day after tomorrow, everything returned to normal, mm-hmm. Uh, I know, isn't, I mean, you just want that. Uh, if everything returned to normal by Tuesday of this coming week, it would still take an awfully long period of time to catch up, wouldn't it? And a lot of money. Absolutely. We, we know just from the first wave of the pandemic, based on our study, just on those six procedures, that provinces would need an additional 15% in funding, in federal funding, to, to meet the needs of just those procedures from that first wave. Um, and so the measures from the second wave uh, are, are not in yet. Now, some of that would have been caught up uh, during the summer months uh, from that brief snapshot in time. But again, we've, uh, this, this has had a far greater impact than the first wave of the pandemic, as we've seen uh, with case numbers and, uh, unfortunately, deaths. Uh, Dr. Collins, what do you and the CMA, what do you make of the uh, the challenges that are involved and the mixed messaging that's coming out and the actually uh, confrontational situations that are developing as far as getting the vaccines into Canadian arms are concerned. What, what do you do? What are you saying about this at the CMA? Well, you've hit the nail on the head with respect to mixed message messaging. And um, I think that uh, we feel that, I know that we feel that had there been greater transparency perhaps from the very beginning of this rollout that um, that messaging wouldn't have been as mixed. And, and unfortunately, what that does is add to the, the great deal of confusion that Canadians have already had to experience throughout the pandemic. Um, and and we, want, we want to have hope. The vaccine is our hope. The vaccine is, is, uh, is our way out of this. So, uh, but sometimes the numbers just don't seem to add up to, to Canadians. So we would just call for, uh, you know, transparent messaging, lay out a plan. Um, I, I think that if people know they have to wait but know when it's going to come, they're accepting of that. But, but Canadians don't need more confusion to deal with. 
No, we've had enough. In, in so many ways, we've had enough. Enough. That could be our license. That could be our national license plate slogan now. We've, we've had, had enough. enough. Professor Cam, would you address the overall issue of debt forgiveness? Oh, I have a few things to say. But the first one is that uh, the listeners don't know me. Uh, one of the things that I'm passionate about, other than my family economics and the Miami Dolphins, is I have a love of Broadway. I love going to New York. I love sitting in the theater and to allow myself to be absorbed by fantasy. And the best show I've seen in a long time happened to be uh, Hamilton, an American musical. And Lin-Manuel Miranda has a line in there. And it was something that Alexander Hamilton said to Thomas Jefferson during the first cabinet battle when Hamilton said, and I quote, Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. With all due respect, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I've read the survey. I've read it a couple times. And so far, what I can distill from it, because as academics, we're supposed to be able to read long documents to come out with something short and concise, is I really feel bad for people. Let's forgive all of their debts. Well, that's not how you run a nation. It's for sure not how you run an economy. It's not how you run a household. And it can't be how you run a government. So... Not to just kind of throw it out there like a big, fat softball to hit, but I have no idea what that survey is getting to. Well, you know, I, I look at it this way, that uh, they wanted to find out how forgiving Canadians are, and it's a survey that was asked, and I, I could pretty well have told you what uh, what the response would be. But their job is to uh, come up with some, you know, if people are in financial difficulties, you know, to come up with, according according to the law and regulations, come up with a solution. So that's that's what they do. But I'm, I'm, I'm stunned that a quarter of Canadians would say it's okay for consumer debt and, uh, and, and, and car payments to be wiped out. So if Professor Eric Cam blows a bundle of dough and heads off to uh, New York City and goes to see 10 Broadway plays and comes back with a massive debt and says, I can't pay it, Roy, would you? You know what my answer is going to be, right? I know what your answer is going to be, and it better be, uh, unless we're all going to face financial insolvency. I don't, I don't understand. Sometimes I just, I guess I just don't get it. And yes, like you, like probably most of the listeners, I could have probably made that survey up in my head and come up with many of the things they cite, critical illness, death of a spouse, job loss. Who's not going to feel bad about any of these things? And, and in fact, I'm actually surprised that some of them ranked higher than student loans and small business debt. And I'm no psychologist, but I have seen this before. And if you see surveys of consumer behavior, there seems to often be this feeling of there must be something structural preventing me from doing the right thing. Because people have a hard time blaming themselves. I do it. Everybody does it. You want to blame somebody else. And I really think that this survey, if it measures anything, I think it measures the frustration and it measures the absolute dire anger of people who have been given no choice but to go into levels of debt um, that, that they could never have imagined of a decade ago. And again, like the broken record that I've been called, how do you blame people when they don't have a job and they don't have No, that's job? absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But if we're talking about gene- general situations and a generic reality, if you have a loan and you've taken out the loan and you've signed on the dotted line to pay, pay off the loan, pay it off. Well, of but course. if there are extenuating circumstances, there are regulations and laws to address that. 
Well, yes. Uh, I mean, we're, we, we sing from the same hymn book on, uh, on this one, although I don't know if there's a Jewish hymn book. But, you know, really quickly, Statistics Canada came up with an update on Friday that like, maybe when we have more time we can dive into. But employment's been decimated yet. Like, just when you think it can't get worse, it lost another 213,000 yeah, jobs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, employment is down now almost a million jobs since the start of this. Part-time work's been decimated. Um, young Canadians cannot find jobs. And the number that I thought was scary is that there's been 700,000 new people who had to work at home since the last survey that StatsCan did. That's almost a million people who have no job. And I'd like to believe that these people would have gone back to their jobs had it been there. So, you know... I said it before, people look for someone to blame when they're having financial difficulties, and that's just natural. But if you want to blame somebody, I can tell you exactly where to blame. Part of the blame is in Ottawa, and part of the blame is at Queen's Park, where there is somehow a belief that there's an overriding reality that we should not have jobs for which people can go to in the morning and actually have a chance to pay their debt. Yeah, and they promise that it's going to be, as Premier Ford has promised, oh, we're going to be the fat, the first back and roaring along. Yeah, that's fine, because you're getting a public salary, public sector salary, and it's not being affected, neither is any of your other, or any other perks of being the Premier or working for the government or the people being affected. We have about a minute here, Professor Cam. This Doesn't this provide a perfect segue to reopening the economy? Well, yes, um, and, and I'm scared about reopening the economy, but not scared in a public health sense. I'm not, a, I'm not a, as my family will tell you, I'm not a real doctor, um, and so I'm not going to talk about what epidemiologists and doctors are going to say about what we should do uh, in terms of public health angle on opening the economy. But it really scares me when the Premier tells me it's full speed ahead, because if he opens the economy the way he's brought out vaccines, we are screwed. So, yes, it is time to open up the economy at minimum. But, I mean, that's, you know, we're locking the barn doors after the horses have been stolen. You've got to give people back their livelihood. That's the end of the story. How fast they bring it back, I know they're going to listen to MDs, and that's okay. But at least start, open up businesses, give people jobs. Every right. dollar spent is a dollar earned. Let's get on with it. Mrs. Chauvin, thank you for coming back on the program, and we can be uh, speak more in depth this time around. Good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me, Roy. I'm in the process of reading your book. I've never had so much information across my computer screen as has happened in the last year, so it's always catch up for me. But I'm reading your book, and it's really, really fascinating because I'm finding out about a person who went to Ottawa. And I'll start with this before we talk about your life. Yeah. You're very open about everything in your life. Yeah. Uh, you went to Ottawa for all the right reasons, and you went to Ottawa to represent the people of Whitby, and to make a difference and not be told by the boys in short pants what to do. You weren't just told by the boys in short pants, euphemistically created by the Mulroney government people, uh, what to do, but you also were confronted by uh, an angry prime minister. So I just, want to, I just want to read a little bit from the introduction in your book. On the morning of Thursday, March 21st, 2019, I opened my eyes. There I was conscious before I had to be, dealing with a 24-hour mascara dust and same incredible headache I'd gone to bed with the night before. The headache was from the stress generated the previous day 
over revealing my newfound freedom from the Canadian political party system the day the the day the first of in my career as an independent member of parliament and not as a part of the liberal caucus had been long and hard I felt like an empty tube of toothpaste someone had tried to squeeze one last time yeah. what a visual <laughs> <laughs> so remind us please of how you got to that point well, you know, it was a culmination of, of four years where, you know, there was a number of different issues for me that really didn't reconcile with the message that was delivered in 2014, 2015, when the Liberals were running. They ran on a platform of open, transparent government, of doing government differently, of, you know, a feminist approach and one that valued diversity and towards, you know, throughout the the time that I was there, I noticed that there were a few things that, you know, just weren't weren't going in the way that that I thought was very open and transparent and one that valued a feminist perspective and one that valued uh, diversity. The first was, you know, uh, not the, the government's promise to uh, to repeal mandatory minimums. You know, I was excluded from many conversations that I thought were important, uh, not just uh, to my to my community of, of Whitby, but largely to a lot of Canadians who who needed that that voice as the one black female voice in the parliament. And by the time I got to the end of of 2019, um, thinking about running again was not an option. And then sitting as an independent, especially after some of the tactics that were pulled during the SNC Laughlin um, scandal, I just thought, you know, it's time for me to to sit as an independent as well. So it would have been easy for you, uh, not easy for you, but it would have been easy, and I'm sure others have done it, to just look the other way and say, well, there's not much I can do about it. I'm not the boss. I'm not the prime minister. I'm not a minister. I'm the parliamentary secretary of the prime minister, so I'll become a minister probably soon. So I don't want to hurt my career. I don't want to hurt my opportunities. So I'll just be quiet, and I'll just go get along, go along to get along. You didn't do that and because it was not why you got into politics you didn't need no. to get into politics you were already successful and as an entrepreneur for sure and and i didn't make that promise to my constituents you have to remember roy i represent 130,000 people in the wonderful town of whitby all of whom i value all of whom i knocked on their doors and made a promise to be authentic made a promise to uh, to stand up for them and made a promise to be their voice in ottawa and and while that you know, might seem like, you know, words that politicians say as a first-time politician, as someone who's run a successful award-winning business for 10 years, I took those those words very seriously, especially when I knew that people were counting on me to stand up for them at a time when um, when when they were looking for something different. Remember that the Trudeau government came in after Harper. People were looking for something different, something refreshing. And so I really wanted to be that voice. I didn't want to go along to get along. So now you tell Mr. Trudeau face-to-face that you're not going to run again. What happened? I know you've told this story a thousand times, but... I did. I have told this story a thousand times, Roy, but for you, I'll tell it a thousand and one. Thank you. <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, so I did tell uh, the Prime Minister as a courtesy that I was not going to be running again. And what I thought was going to be a phone call that would have said, you know, Selena, thank you for the work that you've done. We really value it. Um, sad to see you go. Possibly ask if, you know, I could stay. I could, you know, not consider not running. 
Um, but what I was met with was someone who was irate at the fact that I was making an announcement on the same day that Jody Wilson-Raybould left, uh, resigned as minister. Uh, he told me that I couldn't make the announcement. He couldn't have two powerful women of color leave his government at the same time. Uh, he talked about how he was, I should have been grateful to him and, you know, his, the privilege that that people kept talking to him about his privilege, which I never brought up at that point. Um, all I said to him was that I wasn't running and I wish he would understand the impact that these last four years have had against my family. And I was met with that. The pressure on you after you made that announcement, after you told him, after you decided to sit as an independent, the pressure on you must have been just intense and immense. It was intense. It was intense for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, people voted for me to be a liberal, to sit as a liberal and to be a part of this government. But also it was it was intense because I think they, they, there was an expectation that I would have you know, kept my seat at the table. As you said, go along to get along possibly have a long career in politics. But the one thing, Roy, that I hope people can understand is that, you know, uh, Clayton Christensen, he's a, he's a Harvard professor, wrote a, a, an essay, and in it it says that it's easier to keep stand to your values and your principles 100% of the time than it is to stand to them 98% of the time. I am 100% believe that as a mantra of my life. I'm not just going to waver because it's convenient. I'm going to stand up for the principles that I believe in, which I think the people of Whitby also value um, and stand up for them 100% of the time. So it was easy to do that. But yes, there was tremendous pressure involved. I know you're an independent person from reading in your book because you yeah. were an independent person at five <laughs> years of age. <laughs> yes. Yes, you were. Independent um, all my life, Roy. <laughs> well, and, and successfully so, and that's, I imagine, why so many people voted for you, because yes. you personified what people want when they elect a representative. They don't want somebody right. to just go to Ottawa and vote the way they're supposed to vote and say what they're supposed to say and then obediently sit down. That's not what we want. And that's not who I am. I am... I am an individual who is intelligent, who is strategic, smart. I, I, you know, I ran a business that not only, you know, uh, was involved in research, but neurological research. I really wanted, I really wanted to go there and and use those kind of all those skills and experiences I had in my past into development of policy that I knew could help people, people looking after parents with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, children with epilepsy. Like, those are the things that really drove me to be in politics. So doing otherwise was, was not for me. How much was, um, was race and uh, gender a factor in the way you were treated? And... Well, let's let's leave it at that. How much was race and gender a factor in the way you were treated? By the prime minister specifically, or in in, in well, office? by the prime minister and by the bureaucratic powers that be. You know, I I think it had quite a, a quite a bit to play. You know, when I first sat with the prime minister as a parliamentary secretary in December, I told him that I wasn't interested in filling any gender or racial gaps that he had in his cabinet. Um, that I was perfectly happy being the member of parliament for Whitby. I didn't want to be a token. And unfortunately, I only went to events, and the record will show that I only went to events during that first year as his parliamentary secretary. The only international events I went to were ones that were 
predominantly around black issues. Uh, the, pres- the, the inauguration of President Akufo Addo, the opening of the National African American Museum, and to the state dinner with Obama, uh, which I wasn't invited to the state dinner, I should say, but um, just just to be there. I had no meetings. I really didn't have to use my brain at all in any of those contexts because I had I had no agenda other than to be there sort of as a figurehead. And I, I would say that, you know, there was, there was a, a number of instances that really played on that. And that is not what a feminist diversity is a strength the government does. You utilize those assets, you utilize the diversity within your within your caucus to develop policy. That's what I thought was the intent. Um, but as I said, I'll either use for you know, a, a token at many roles or excluded from conversations altogether. I'm just going to share a very brief story with you. Mm-hmm. In uh, 1992, I think it was, 1991, I managed to persuade the uh, Prime Minister of Canada's people at the time, Brian Mulroney, to give me a one-hour, one-on-one, face-to-face interview. Now, you can imagine what might have been involved to get that. Right. But I did. And we sat down and we talked. And at one point I said to him, Mr. Mulroney, you know what people are fed up with? They're fed fed up with electing a member of parliament at the constituency level and then having that member of parliament go to Ottawa to represent them at the constituency level but have no power, no influence really. That MP just does what you say. And the prime minister looked at me and he said, I'm tired of the bitchers and complainers. (laughs) That went across the country. Yeah. But that, to me, spoke about what it can be about, and what you did is different. In your introduction in the book, you write in, uh, in, can you hear me now, you wrote, yes, I'd spent a whole day crying over my decision to walk away, but I could not see how to reconcile the demands of party politics with the uh, awakenings I'd undergone. I had to leave. Sometimes the most powerful action you can take is to refuse to remain part, to remain part of a machine that is keeping you down. Your earliest years as a child, separated from her parents as an infant in Grenada, and reconnected in Toronto to parents who had appeared largely as strangers to you, must have begun, I'm guessing, that journey of self-reliance for you. Uh, For sure. I think that, um, you know, leaving Grenada at two years old, coming to a foreign country, um, my parents, unfortunately, their visas came ahead of mine, and so... They made a, a, a very painful decision of leaving me back with my grandparents. But coming here, you know, would have been one where even at two years old, I would have had to figure out how I fit in, how I belonged, and built some resilience there. So um, being a little bit of an independent was, uh, was was from birth, I think. Yeah, and you're right about, uh, well, I, I read about Robert, who had a major influence on your life as a child when you were five, I think you were five-year-old. And, and you write about people who had a specific influence on in certain parts of your life. But you also write about your father coming home one night when you were still a child and he was very troubled. Um, what was that about? And um, was that, that was that your first encounter with racism? Well, you know, I, in the book I describe it as the haunt, like just seeing something that I didn't know what it was, but knowing that it was, it was something that was deeply personally hurting my father and something that I was, I knew that I was, probably going to be afraid of because of the fact that it, it bothered him so much. I never seen my father bothered in that way. And I described it as a haunt um, because, you know, when you're writing, you're sort of remembering what you thought of at the time. And at the time, just looking at his face, the way it sort of sunk. 
And then him sort of coming up with the idea to start this trucking company, which, which now my, my brother owns, the company is still thriving. But just, you know, just seeing him in that state really thought, man, I, I don't know if I ever want to feel the effects of that, of, of whatever that haunt was, which ended up being, being the, the sting of racism. Yeah. When and we have three minutes here, I wish we had a lot more time, but yeah. it, you had the entrepreneurial spirit as well. Your parents did, yes. the trucking firm, the transportation firm, still, as you say, going very strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you growing up um, in Ontario, in the Toronto area, um, rebellious, uh, adventuresome, challenging? And, and how did you, is there an incident that explains how you challenged that energy into becoming the successful entrepreneur, award-winning entrepreneur you became before you were elected to Parliament? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, you know, if you read the book, my life has a series of ups and downs. And I say one of the lowest points I had was leaving university, uh, you know, had a really tough time throughout university. But, you know, the, the, the values that my parents instilled in me, as tough as they were on me, they instilled some values of education, of strength, of perseverance, of being able to, you know, overcome. And even with that, I went back to school, went back to the fourth-year research program, really fell in love with it, found a mentor in Dr. Carol Greenwood, who's in the Department of Nutritional Sciences there, and Dr. Don Stuss, who passed away last year. But in those two people really found a passion and a love for research and started a company that I thought would honor, honor that commitment, not just to the brain, but to research and to the love I have of business. Um, but really, it was that downtime, that time when I was really, really down and out that I turned it around and said, you know, I could do better than this. What's your assessment of Canada and Canadians today? You know, you know, when people say this is the best country in the world, that, that I don't think that's a, you know, a hashtag. That really is the country that we live in. Um, can we do better? Absolutely. I think one of the things that the pandemic, as well as these conversations about racial inequality have done, is to highlight that there is some improvements that need to be made. To highlight the fact that there is um, this this great inequality that exists for mostly Black and Indigenous people, Um when we think about the impacts of healthcare, of justice system, of our child welfare system, education system. So there's a lot of work to do. And I think the only way that we could do it is to do it together. If we learn anything from 2020, it has to be all hands on deck. You uh, are a remarkable person. Everything that you've accomplished in your life, and then you were elected into the halls of national power, and you stood your ground. You weren't uh, intimidated. You stood up for yourself, and you challenged those who uh, challenged you, and uh, you walked away from, from that experience with your head high. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 